Let's pray, though, and let's bow our heads and uh, commit our time. Father, I pray that as we come now to your word, that you would, um, you would bless our time, that you would enable me to teach your word clearly and faithfully. Lord, and uh, while much of what we are going to be dealing with today is complex, I pray that the, that the basic truths will be clear. I pray that uh, you would enable us to, to see your truth, and not just to see it, not just to understand it, but that it would impact us. That your Holy Spirit that inspired this word would really make changes in our hearts through the preaching of your word this day. May you be glorified in our midst today, we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. First Peter 3, and we're picking up in verse 18. We are going to try and um, go through uh, the rest of this chapter today. It is, as I said, it's quite a tricky passage. There's several difficult things. Let's just read through it briefly, and I will point out to you the difficult areas we're going to try and navigate as we go through. So let's have a look. Verse 18 and following. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Whew. We have here in this passage the awkward reference to spirits in prison being proclaimed to. We have a reference to the time of Noah. And we have a passage that talks about baptism saving. So that's a lot of controversies for us to deal with as we go through. So as we do that, let's do what we always do and let's make sure we have the right context. The entirety of the preceding section has been dealing with the importance of trusting God, specifically of submitting to God and any earthly authorities that we need to submit to in a time of suffering. When we are going through a hard time, when life is difficult, when persecution comes, when we are suffering, when there are trials, that is not an excuse for us to sin. Rather, the example of Christ should be our example. That he, when he suffered, uh, that he, was, uh, he did not sin, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So Jesus, in the midst of his righteous suffering, he did not sin in, as a reaction to being sinned against. He did not revile, he did not threaten, but rather he trusted the Father. He trusted that the Father would bring all things to pass. 
That's been the context for what? Two chapters now? This whole section? This is so crucial that we understand this. And that we understand that that is the context going into this passage. Because this passage, although it has specific issues to be dealt with, is not isolated. It's found in this context. Okay? Uh, specifically in the last few verses, we saw uh, in verses 13 and following that um, by Peter quoting from Isaiah chapter 8 and inserting Jesus into it, that as in Isaiah 8, this was last week, as in Isaiah 8, people were worried about what was going on. They were trusting in different nations. And the message in Isaiah 8 was this, God is holy. Yahweh of hosts, Yahweh of armies, Yahweh of the heavenly realm, he is distinct from all others. There's no point in trusting in this nation who trusts in their gods when you can trust in Yahweh who is holy and distinct beyond all other gods, beyond all other nations. He's the God of all nations and he is the one that you should fear. When the armies come and they gather against you, with the armies gathered on the brink of Jerusalem, the message of Isaiah was, don't fear those armies that you can't see, fear God who is sovereign over all armies. That was the message. It was a good sermon last week, by the way. You can catch up online. But that was really the gist of it. And what he was then saying is that when people see you responding without fear, not being troubled, trusting in Christ, then they will come to you and say, why do you have this assurance? Why do you have this hope? And then we have an opportunity to gently share the gospel with them. The other thing, the last thing by way of context before we press in, that is absolutely crucial, is that Isaiah 8 said, you should trust Yahweh because he is holy. And in 1 Peter, Peter takes that same passage and he says this. He says, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Christ is the Lord. That's a reference in Isaiah 8 to Lord's capital letters, Yahweh, name of God. And it's saying that Jesus is God who is holy. In the same way that in Isaiah 8 they had to trust Yahweh because he is holy, we trust Christ because he is Yahweh, he is God, and he himself is holy and distinct. It was, as I explained last time, a clear declaration of the deity of Jesus Christ. Okay? So that's our context. Keep all that in the back of your mind. Alright? Now let's dig in. As we finished off last time, it is better to suffer, verse 17, for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And so we do what's good if we're going to suffer anyway, because we don't want to suffer for what we've done. We want to uh, suffer having done no wrong like Christ. And that leads us into verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he, may, he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. This verse, and I was tempted to spend a whole week on this verse, but, uh, but we'll, we'll try and finish the section off. But this is a glorious gospel nugget, as Spurgeon used to call them. 
where these little verses where the entirety of the gospel is contained in a single verse. That Christ suffered once for sins. That is the distinction from the Old Testament sacrificial system. Most of you here were here were before First Peter when we were teaching through the book of Hebrews. And we saw again and again and again the reference to the fact that in the Old Covenant there was sacrificing of animals that happened again and again and again. And on the Day of Atonement every year there was this sacrifice that was made for the sins of the people of Israel did it deal with the problem of sin no because next year on the day of atonement they're having to go through the process all over again what Christ accomplished on the cross was that there was his death his suffering led to his death for our sins once this is why we reject the Catholic doctrine of the Mass. They teach that in the Mass, unlike communion, where we believe that the bread and the, the cup is a re re representation, a remembrance of what Jesus has done, in the Catholic Church they teach that it is a re-sacrificing of Christ. That the, that the bread and the cup literally, literally becomes the body and the blood of Christ and that he is then re-sacrificed. That is an abhorrence. Christ is not re-sacrificed. What Christ did on the cross was sufficient for the punishment of sin for all time. Every single sin that I could ever commit, every sin that you would ever commit, every sin ever committed by every person who's lived before us and will live after us, that every one of those sins, if faith is placed in Christ, is sufficient to cover their sins. That his death was once for those sins. Once. Just once. And I, I get that we... If we've been in the faith for a while, we under, I, I, don't, I don't suspect that any of you are going to be rushing out from here and having to cancel your plans to sacrifice a few sheep, maybe a bull or two. I don't think any of you are going to struggle with us having moved on from the old covenant system. But I bet that some of you struggle with receiving the forgiveness of Christ. I bet that many of you will go out from here and when you mess up you will somehow feel that there has to be some period of dutiful separation that you can't come before God because you've just done X again you've messed up again and therefore you, you can't go before God because, because he's just so angry with you because you've just done it again and we think that in thinking that way, that we're somehow thinking righteously. When in fact what we're doing is we're denying the work of Christ on the cross. I've said this so many times and I'll, God willing, say it so many more. But God is no longer angry with you. If you are a Christian... If you have placed your trust in Christ, if his death is something that you've trusted in for your salvation, then he's not angry with you. 
because the wrath of God was placed upon him as a punishment for your sin. So what is there left? Did God pour out most of his wrath on Jesus? But he saved a little bit just for when you're really naughty. So that you'd really feel bad. That's not the nature of God. He has dealt with our sin so that we have access to the throne of grace that we might come before him because of his kindness in a constant heart of repentance because of the goodness that he's shown towards us. Do not let the lies of the enemy convince you that God is so angry with you that you can't go before him. He wants to do that so that you don't go to God and that you stay ineffective and distant. The throne of grace is always open to those who have been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. So he suffered once for sins, the righteous one dying for the unrighteous. Him giving us his righteousness and us giving essentially to him our sins that he might be punished for them. And why is this being done? That he might bring us to God. Your problem is not that you're sick. Your problem is not that you're poor. The problem is not that you don't have the job you want, the life you want, or whatever else it is that you want. There are heretical churches up and down the land that will preach to you to have your best life now and help you fix every little problem in your life. And I praise God that we're not one of them. Because the only problem that we have as a human race is separation from God. The only thing that separates people from God is sin. And it doesn't matter if you're rich and poor, if you're sick or you're healthy. Sometimes God allows us to go through, as we've seen in Peter, these terrible trials so that we might be brought to God. And again and again I hear testimonies of people who say, you know, I wasn't really interested in God and then I got sick. I wasn't really interested in God and then this terrible thing happened. I wasn't really interested in God and, and then someone died. And God uses these circumstances providentially to draw people to him. And when we come to him and we come to Christ and we believe that he died in our place for our sins, then we are able to be reconciled to God. And he brings us to God the Father that we might be reconciled to him. And so you see in this verse this wonderful gospel nugget that being put to death in the flesh, so his, his body dies, and yet he is made alive in the spirit. That Christ's body dies, but that he is made alive. That in his spirit there is life, that he, he dies. How, how, this is one of, probably I think, more than the other verses, one of the most problematic parts of this. How does Jesus get made alive in his spirit rather than just being alive? That, to me, is the most problematic part of this whole passage. And I think that one of the potential answers of this is that somehow, in the three hours of darkness on the cross, there was some form, don't ask me to explain it because I can't, 
I used to think I could, the, the more I look at it, the harder it gets. But in some way, in those last three hours on the cross, when darkness fell on the land, that Christ died in spirit. Don't fully understand it. I can't fully explain what it means, but I do know what it represents. It is, it is Christ taking the sins of the world upon him and receiving the wrath of God. And I think that those three hours of darkness were far greater than the actual physical death. Far greater than the actual pain of scourging and crucifixion. And so he dies physically and in his spirit redemption has been accomplished. The price has been paid for sins and he is alive to rule and to reign forevermore. Isn't that just a glorious verse? So why or why does Peter ruin it by talking about spirits in prison? <laughs> Let's find out. It all fits and it all makes sense. Just maybe not to us yet. It then says in verse 19, in which, the crucial thing about in which is a reference to the spirit in the previous verse. So he's made, he's put to death in the flesh, his body dies, we understand that. He's made alive in the spirit, so now he is, he is alive spiritually though his body has died, right? And at that time, in his, in his spirit, so the body is dead, but in his living spirit, he went. Okay? So that's the first thing that we note. He goes. He goes somewhere. Where does he go? He goes and proclaims to the spirits in prison. This is something that has stumbled and stru caused struggles for people for centuries. If you knew the amount of reading I had to do this week, the amount I did and the amount I didn't get done, the amount that was available I didn't even try to do, there has been so much written about this and there's such a struggle. The, the word spirits here, what does it refer to? Where is the prison? Why are there spirits in prison? And why on earth is Peter talking about it at this point in his book? There's all sorts of things here. So let's, let's have a look a little bit further and get a few more clues and then we'll come back and look at the options. So, let's start with verse 19 and what we do know. And I think this is really helpful when you do your own Bible study. Rather than getting lost on what you don't know, if a passage is difficult, focus on what you do know. Jesus in his spirit, not his body because the body's died, at that point in his spirit he goes somewhere. That we do know. We know that he goes and he proclaims to spirits in prison. So Jesus is going and he is proclaiming to the spirits who are in prison. That we do know. Okay? Because they formerly did not obey. Right. So whoever these spirits in prison are, we know that formerly they didn't obey. So the spirits in prison are disobedient spirits. That much we know. Okay? Alright, so, they formally did not obey, 
When formally? A week before? A month before? A few years before? I mean, give us some clues here, Peter. Peter says, fine, here's some clues. He says this, they formally did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Right. Now we know who he's referring to. He's referring to spirits who were disobedient at a specific time in history, and the specific time in history is the time in history immediately before the flood when God is patiently waiting and patiently waiting and patiently waiting before finally dealing with sin through means of a worldwide flood. Which is why I have Brian, not Scarlett as it says in the bulletin, her kids are sick, but that's why I have Brian read to us this morning from Genesis 6. So let's turn to Genesis 6 and see what spirits we can find at the time of Noah before the flood. Because we're told specifically that's what he's referring to. So let's go and look at Genesis chapter 6. Have Brian read from the end of chapter 5, because I wanted us to see how um, the often ignored uh, um, generations, the descendants, the genealogy, that was the word I was looking for, the, the often ignored and skimmed over genealogies. You know you guys who are following Bible reading plans? Doesn't it get a little bit difficult when it hit, you hit the genealogies? It, it's not like you're there saying... Yeah, descendant of so-and-so. Yeah, descendant of so-and-so. You're kind of there, just kind of hanging in there, hanging in there. But I want you to see how the genealogy flows. So verse 28 of chapter 5. Lamech lived 182 years. He fathered a son. Okay? Called his name Noah. Out of the ground, the Lord has cursed this one. Shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. So, Yahweh's curse the ground, but relief is going to come through Noah. Lamech lived, after he fathered Noah, 595 years, and had other sons and daughters. Now, why on earth would I read the end of the genealogy going into chapter 6? Why does that flow? Because in the genealogy, you have this constant reference to sons and daughters. Sons and daughters. Sons and daughters. It's really important that we see that. Because these sons and daughters come and we go through this genealogy. There's sons and there's daughters, there's sons and there's daughters, there's sons and there's daughters. And we go through from Adam. We go from Adam through Seth. We go from Seth and through Enosh. And we just keep on going through. I'll mention Kenan, even though he's not here, because it's not often I get to do that. He's here as well. And then there's, um, you know, right the way through to Methuselah. Famous for living longer than anybody else, 969 years. And then we have Lamech, and then we have Noah. So we have this whole progression, sons and daughters, sons and daughters, that take us to Noah, right? Remember that. All right, chapter 6. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them. You see the link? Daughters. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Now this is a passage that is hugely problematic to a lot of people. But it's actually very, very simple. It's really simple. We see that there are sons and daughters, sons and daughters, sons and daughters that take us to Noah. And at the same time on the earth, 
There is the multiplying, obviously, of other people. There's, there's not just the, the, the line of Noah. But at this point, because of the huge lifespans, you imagine living 969 years. That's going to be one heck of a gathering at Thanksgiving, right? Everybody's showing up, all the in-laws and cousins and what have you. But, I mean, joking aside, very, very seriously, people are having children at the same time that their great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren are having children. The world's population is multiplying hugely. And what is happening at this point, that in contrast to chapter 5 and the genealogy of Noah, there is also another group of sons and daughters. Now we're told very specifically, the daughters are daughters of men. Humankind. The sons are the sons of God. Now... That phrase, Son of God, we associate with Christ, and so we don't see the Old Testament usage of it. We need to remember that the Hebrew word for God, El Elohim, is predominantly used of God's capital G. But about 20-25% of the time that that word's used in the Hebrew Bible, it doesn't refer to God. It refers to other gods, false gods, demons, the spiritual realm. And so what's happening here is there's a clear distinction between human daughters and spiritual men. Those of the spiritual realm. Those of the realm of the Elohim. We're talking about angels and women. Now, at this point, people go, that can't be right. And normally, they say that can't be right for one reason. It sounds crazy. That's the, that's the number one reason. Now, people will try and justify that with other reasons. They'll talk about Matthew 22 and verse 30, where it talks, Jesus talks about how um, when we go uh, in the next life, that there will be no marriage and we'll be like the angels in heaven. And they say, see, angels don't reproduce. The angels in heaven, there's, there's, no, there's no marriage, there's no giving in marriage in, in heaven. The angels in heaven, that, they, they, they don't do that. But here's the problem that you have. Firstly, that says in heaven. This is happening where? On the earth. Secondly, when angels come on the earth, good angels, when, for example, God meets with Abraham in Genesis 18 and 19, and he comes with some angels, what does he do? He prepares for them food. He offers to wash their feet. They look like people to some degree. But in another sense, they're not like people. Because what's the first thing that an angel has to say? They don't say, hi, I'm an angel. The first thing they always say is, don't be afraid. You don't, have to, you don't have to give your name. You just have to say, don't be afraid. Because the first thing that anybody's going to do when they see you is they're going to be afraid. Because angels were not little flappy things. They're not like those little cherubs with harps. The wing reference comes from the cherubim and the seraphim, which were serpent-type creatures, apparently. But angels were warriors, mighty when they appear on earth. And they clearly can appear on earth, and they're clearly big, imposing, scary, mighty, glorious. And what happened is, 
that some angelic beings come to earth and they see the most beautiful of human women and they say, I like you. That's what they did. And if they have feet that can be washed, and if they have stomachs that can digest food, then when they go from the spiritual realm to the human realm, then I don't think there's any biblical reason not to believe that they can take a wife. The issue is, is they shouldn't be there. They shouldn't be there. We'll talk about that more in a moment. I want to clear up one little thing here. It says they took as their wives any they chose. Now, in English, that can sound very much like something that's non-consensual. So I just want to clarify, the verb to take a wife is used in the best of circumstances throughout the Old Testament. It was just the verb that was used. I don't think the taking of any they chose is implying that they were forcefully taking these women. I think it simply means that if one of those angels has shown up in a club, everyone would have been looking at them and nobody else. In other words, these are these most mighty of men. They are glorious. They are powerful. They are, they are desirable. And they see the human women and they get the pick of the bunch. I think that's what it means. And so humanity is now being, having this, this, um, this blending of humanity and the angelic realm. And look what happens as a result. Verse 3, Yahweh said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. Now, I don't want to do, get into this verse in detail because there's, there's all sorts of issues. Is he talking about how long until the flood comes and wipes them out? Or is he talking about human lifespan being limited to prevent the, the incredible rate of reproduction? That's that, the issues there. But what I do want you to see in verse 3 is that God is not happy with this cohabitation, this, this giving in marriage that's happening in verse 2. Verse 4 tells us the other result. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. In other words, when this happened, when these angels came down and co-lived co with married these, these human women, the Nephilim is your offspring. Okay? And who were they? They were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. That's an expression that's used of warriors and mighty people and, and, and glorious heroes of the day. Now, that's a very strange passage. Very strange passage. And then, verse 5, Yahweh saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. So that leaves us with a whole bunch of questions. God's not happy with this, this blending of angels and humans. And as a result, we have these Nephilim that come about. Now, I'm going to keep an eye on time. I don't want to give you a sermon on Nephilim. Okay? But let me just say this very, very quickly. The Nephilim is only mentioned one other time in Scripture as a word. But the concept is in loads of places in the Old Testament. The Nephilim are also called the Rephaim, 
We know that there was a tribe called the Rephaim that became associated with the Nephilim. And the Rephaim is the phrase that was typically used. They were also a tribe called the Anakim. And the Anakim were Rephaim. We see that um, in Deuteronomy chapter 2. The Moabites called them the Emim. And if you want some really cool names, they were called the Zamzumin. Abbreviated probably as well to Zumin. They had a whole bunch of names and they're there. And they're not just there in the Old Testament. They're there in all the ancient literature of all the other nations and religious people of that day. The, the people historically had a, a mythology, if you like, of a race of giant people. The Greeks called them Titans. And in fact, in the Septuagint, when this word is translated, Nephilim, it's translated with the word that means giant. These were giants. And then we see them everywhere. We see the king Og with his bed that is like, how many feet long, you know, I think it was something like 40 feet, with this huge bed. There is, there is Goliath, who, who there is much debate over his precise height, but he's basically double the height of you or I, at the very least. There are giants in the land. And then, of course, famously in Numbers chapter 13, the Jews come to Kadesh Barnea, they come to the edge of the land, and what do they say when the spies go in? They say, they're like giants! And people read it today and say, oh, they're just exaggerating. They, they were just strong people. No, no. They specifically says that they were the Anakim, the descendants of Anak. And that, Numbers 13, is the only other passage in the Bible that the actual word Nephilim is used. Because this happened at the time of the flood, but it also, Genesis 6, happened sometime afterwards. So let's... Let's just accept the incredible awkwardness of this moment. There were angelic human half-breeds on the earth at the time of the flood, to a very large degree, multitude is used, remember, in verse 1 of chapter 6, and also at a later time as well. Why? Genesis chapter 3. How is Satan going to be defeated? Through the seed of the woman. And so what does Satan do? Some angelic beings that we will call demons, they come to earth and take human women and they take them as wives and they get the pick of the bunch. Whomever they choose, they are the most desirable. And as a result, people are wanting to be part of this. And some people believe that this was so widespread that the majority, and some people, I'm, I'm not sure I go this far, some say almost the entirety of the world, was somehow that the seed of humanity was corrupted to some degree, to some percentage. And that, but Noah can trace his line back to Adam, and he is pure. You see, the reason that this happened is that Satan would stop the Messiah from coming. Because the Messiah is going to be the seed of the woman. The plan was to prevent this prophecy from coming true by corrupting the world 
and corrupting the, the genes, the human genes, so that the Messiah could no longer be truly seed of the woman. Now the flood dealt with this problem. But then it happened again afterwards. Have you ever struggled with passages in the Old Testament where Saul is told to go in to a, to a land and to wipe everybody out, all the men and all the women and all the children? Does that not strike you as difficult? When you read the tribes that were Rephaim, that were Nephilim, that were Amalekites, you discover that what is being wiped out is not fully human. It's very important that we see that and we understand that. Now, when we were discussing this on a Tuesday study just this last week, someone raised the very important and interesting question. Is it possible that there are Nephilim today? Now, before you start judging that person next to you who's really tall and strong, I think no. Why? Because the Messiah has come. There's no purpose to it anymore. He has come. Now this, I think, will make a whole bunch more sense when we now go back to 1 Peter. And by the way, this is not something that's limited to the Old Testament because Peter references it again in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4. God did not spare angels when they sinned but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. And there again is a reference to Noah. And then in the book of Jude, in the book of Jude, there is uh, again this reference in verse 6. And, um, sorry, not, you find it. Um, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. This is crucial. In fact, let me, let me read this to you slowly if you haven't turned there. Jude verse 6. The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but they left their proper dwelling. That's Genesis 6. They left their dwelling. They came to earth. He is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Those angels who left their domain to come to earth to try and prevent Messiah from coming have a special judgment and they're currently in chains. They were placed into chains. Now that makes a whole bunch more sense of First Peter 3. Let's go back there. When Jesus died on the cross, in his spirit he's made alive, and then he goes and he proclaims. It's not preaching. He's not preaching to people who've died. He's not giving anyone a second chance. That doesn't happen. These spirits, we're specifically told, are spirits who were disobedient at the time of Noah before the flood. And he goes to them where they're imprisoned. That's the chain reference that we've seen in Jude and Second Peter. And he goes to them in prison and he proclaims to them. What does he proclaim? I think that's going to become clear in a minute. Let's just try and finish this off. So this happened in the days of Noah. Ark was being prepared, verse 20, in which a few, that's eight persons, were brought safely through water. Okay. That verse 
sounds initially a little strange. That Noah was saved through water. Ah, hold on a second, you say. Wasn't Noah saved despite the water? (laughs) As I read the story, the ark was what saved him, not the water. The water was the problem and the ark was the solution, right? No, wrong. The water saved humanity. Because without the water dealing with the problem of Nephilim, there would have been no Messiah and there would have been no salvation. Noah was saved from the water by the ark. But in another sense, Noah and all who've descended from him received salvation through the water. Every one of God's judgments is an expression of his mercy. Let me say that again, because I know it's hard to understand. Every one of God's judgments is an expression of his mercy. God is a God of love. He is a God of kindness. He is a God of mercy. He is a God of goodness. Did, did that stop? Did he suddenly say, oh, I'm going to put my goodness away in, in the closet for a bit, and I'm going to just go and flood the earth, and then I'll go back to being good again? Or was the flood an expression of his goodness. When you see the big picture, things look very different. And then, verse 21, I think, makes a lot more sense. Baptism, which corresponds to this. Let's come back to that. Now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, first of all, let's deal with the the, the elephant in the room. Does being baptized save somebody? In the sense of salvation from your sins, absolutely not. And to suggest that you can take this verse out of context and make it mean that is a nonsense because Peter has clearly proclaimed salvation by faith alone already in this book and it would be completely contrary to everything that he's previously said. Okay? So let's understand that firstly. Secondly, part of the problem we have is that we, whenever we use the word save in a Christian context, we always mean salvation from sin. But the word save is used in the Bible far more broadly. Look at the analogy that he's painting here. He's saying that Noah was saved because of the water that removed the Nephilim and removed the spirits that were creating the Nephilim. Yes? That's clear, I think, in the context. The water saved Noah by removing that problem. In the same way, this corresponds, what baptism does is this. Baptism is a moment in time that gets rid of what needs to be gotten rid of and gives a new start. Now look at the context of First Peter. Here are people who are being persecuted for their faith and maybe even persecuted unto death. If there was ever a time of history, it was the time just after this book, if there was ever a time when you would want to be a secret Christian, where you wouldn't want to say, hey, I'm a Christian. There are people here today who are, who are going to either already or potentially in the future be scared to say in a place of work, I'm a Christian, because they might lose their job. 
These are people who might say, I'm a Christian, and lose their family, be put in prison, be put to death. And what he's saying to those people is he's saying this, you go ahead and be baptized anyway, and it will save you. From what? It will save you from a compromised life. It will save you from fleeing away from the privilege of suffering like your Messiah suffered. It will free you from the compromise of seeking a comfortable life and fearing those around you and not fearing God and not fearing Christ who is holy and who is Lord of hosts and who is above all. It will free you from all of this compromise, from all of this failure. In the midst of this time of persecution, you go ahead and be baptized anyway, and you say to the world, I am Christ's. I belong to him. He is mine. And whatever comes, I stand with him. And we live in a time that is so compromised, and is so... And is so We've capitulated as a church so much that we think that being saved in this kind of context is getting away with keeping our job, is getting away with staying alive, is getting away with keeping our friends, is getting away with not being ostracized. We think that's being saved. He's saying it's not. He's saying sometimes there are things that need to be removed and wiped out. There is in our lives... A history that needs to be done away with. And he's going to talk about that immediately as we come into chapter 4. That there's a way of life and a way of living that now is dead. It's gone. It's under the waters of baptism. There is a way in which we used to live and that's now over. And now we're going to live in a very different way. We're going to live as people who fear God. We fear Christ. We honor him. We acknowledge him as holy. And that is what distinguishes us above every other person on the world. And that may lead to glory and it may lead to persecution. And we just say, whatever, I'm Christ's. That's what's being spoken of here. And so, baptism is an appeal to God for a good conscience. This is how I want to be God. This is how I want to represent you. Give me the privilege of suffering for you, of serving you. See how different this is in context? But it happens through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, he died in the flesh, but he's made alive in the spirit. And in his resurrection to life, in his resurrection to proclamation to the spirits, in that there is life for us. And that we can die to the things of the, of the flesh, we can die to our old lives, and we can have this new life in Christ. And we can live our lives with a good conscience. Yes, it will involve suffering. Yes, it will involve suffering in silence. Yes, it will mean being persecuted. Yes, it will mean going through stuff that if we just compromised a little bit, we could get away with. But we will suffer without sinning, without reviling, without threatening, because we will trust Christ. And so his resurrection is the basis 
of this appeal. The appeal of baptism. The appeal to God that we would live our lives with a good conscience. The appeal that we would be those who would live in this way that he has given to us all the way through from chapter 2. Really from chapter 1, be holy as I am holy. Right the way through this, this radical, different, controversial life of, Christi- of Christianity. That this would be our lives. So let's go bapti- get baptized. Let's go tell the world we are Christ's. Do you know, even to this day, in ultra-Orthodox Jewish communities, if you get baptized and say you're going to follow Christ, they'll have a funeral for you. Because in cultures that understand the significance of baptism, baptism is the point of no return. You go, they, those, those people in those communities, they go to their family, they say, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. Then the families will hope that they'll, they'll cease to be a Christian, that it's a phase that they're going through. But when they get baptized, that's the point of no return. It's become so loose to us. But it is, a, it is a statement, it's a declaration, and it's an appeal to God that we would live this way. Now, all of this then is tied together in this final verse. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand with God, with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. That's the explanation of your proclamation. Christ now has gone and he has ascended. He died, he was buried, he was resurrected, and now he's ascended and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And he's there and he has authority. And look, the angelic realm, the word angels, we understand, I think, the word authorities is a word that is used, and the word powers is also a word that's used of angelic beings, demonic powers, entities in the realm of God, the unseen realm, the spiritual realm. Paul uses the phrases in the same way. So Jesus is now seated at heaven and he has said, I have beaten you. That's why there's no Nephilim today. That's why it sounds so strange to us. Cultures all over the world have myths of giants. Why? Because there were giants. But we think it's silly and it's a myth. Why? Because we don't have giants. Why don't we have giants? Because Jesus was born through a pure human seed and they failed. And Jesus... When he is made alive in the spirit, he goes and he proclaims and he says, you lost. This is no preaching or proclaiming or giving of second chances to human spirits as some would teach. This is Jesus saying to the angelic realm, you tried to stop me, but I came. You tried to kill me, but I'm alive. I won, you lost. And you are now under my authority. Christ is sovereign over the angelic realm. You want a summary of this whole thing? Christ is sovereign over the angelic realm. Now in your bulletins, you may have noticed the title of today's sermon was this. Jesus, Yahweh of hosts. In Isaiah 8, the passage being referenced just in last week's sermon, just before, where Peter is very clearly showing that Jesus is the Yahweh of the Old Testament. He's the one you should fear. He's the one that you should trust. And in Isaiah 8, who is Yahweh? In, in, in Isaiah 8, he's Yahweh of hosts. 
He is Yahweh who is sovereign over the armies and more specifically the heavenly armies. Who is Jesus? He is God who is sovereign over the heavenly armies. You do not have to be scared by ghosts and ghouls and demons and all things that are popularized in horror movies. Whatever exists out in the spiritual realm that we do or don't understand, Jesus Christ has conquered them all. They tried to stop him from coming and he came. They sent him to the cross and he rose again. And he stands over them and says, I won. And we are the fruit of the victory of Christ. And that is why he is going to go on to say the things that he says in chapter 4. And I am so glad that that passage is out of the way. What do you take away from all of this, folks? You take away this. Wrap it up into two little concepts. That God is sovereign over all nations, all people, all things, all circumstances. And he's even sovereign. Christ is sovereign over the whole of the angelic realm. And so there is nothing that we should fear. And we should fear God alone. And so it's perfectly okay for us in this life in this era in whatever however politics changes however our 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 culture changes it is always good for us to say through baptism and through whatever other means i am christ's and that may well lead to persecution suffering and death and then we say this god may i have a good conscience as i walk through this suffering that my suffering might be an opportunity for people to see Christ in me. Might I respond without sin, without reviling, without threatening. Might I respond by blessing those who persecute me so that they might come to me and say, why are you not bothered about this? What, What is this assurance that you have? And you say to them, thank you very much. Let me tell you about the one who died once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous that I might be made alive with him and live with him for all eternity. Whatever you do to me in this life, there are treasures in the next life that you cannot touch. May this inspire us and encourage us and cause us to walk by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And I do pray that... uh, that in the midst of all the complexities and controversies, that the glorious truths of this passage might stay with us. May we not compromise and opt out of true Christian living. May we live a radically different life because we trust you, because we know who Christ is. He is Yahweh of hosts that all the angelic realm has been made subject to him, that by his death he has conquered all. May we fear him and him alone. And may he be glorified in our lives and in the lives of this church. In his name we pray. Amen.